All right, let's take our Bibles and turn into Exodus chapter 20. And if I make the, uh, if I put forth a good effort, I ought to be able to get done with this 20th chapter. There's something I'm just trying my best to get out and to get across because I think it is so vital, so absolutely necessary that you understand, you and I understand this particular fact. And that is why God would bring the Hebrew people under such a law. Why it is so important that they live under His rules and what God Himself has designed for them. And the same is true for you and I. We know ourselves, we have the illustrations of Parents who love their children, they care about their children, they, they will put them under the umbrella of their love, which includes household rules and regulations. I mean, only abusive parents, parents who don't have love and concern for their children, allows them just to run wild. And some of them, they use the excuse, well, I let my child go do this and go out yonder where I don't know where he is. I let him or her do this or that because I trust them. Now that's not wise. That never is wise. Uh, when I was a young person, when I was a teenager, I'm telling you, I could not be trusted. I could not be trusted. I lied. And I snuck around. And I hid behind the barn. And I tried to keep things from my mother and my dad, things I wanted to do. I remember going through the house one time as a little bitty guy. And my dad smoked. And he had put his cigarettes out in the ashtrays, and I'd go through getting them little ducks out of there. My dad, on the side, he, he built he builded turquoises, those round cement tubes that go down into the well, you know. And uh, he built those. And so he had a bunch of turquoises out there. And me and my cousin, we put curtains on each side of those opened ends, and we'd get in there and smoke those cigarette butts, that they called them. And uh, we hid in there to do that. And while we were in there doing that one day, and those curtains now is over both ends, I could hear somebody walking toward those, those uh, turquoises. <laughs> and it was my mother, and she pulled that curtain up like that and smoke boiled out. It just boiled out. And she said, are y'all smoking? We said, no, ma'am. <laughs> oh, me. We were caught. I snuck around. I couldn't be trusted. And when Dad, Dad would have at times certain suspicions of me that I may have done something, something was done, and it was probably Tommy who did it. And so he'd come to me, and he would ask me, and he'd say, you better not be lying to me, boy. And I knew what it meant if he caught me in the lie. But uh, anyway, 
those rules were in, in place to make a better man out of me and to keep me safe. And I didn't have enough understanding, enough sense to realize that it was for my own good. And I'm afraid that that's the way it is with the rules and regulations that God has made for His people from the beginning of creation right on up to the day and hour that we live and beyond. God has put these things in there because He is saying, this is how I am and this is the way I want you to be. Be ye holy for I am holy. And there's nothing more destructive in anybody's life than sin. Sin is a very destructive thing. And it, it destroys a life, it destroys homes, it destroys nations, it, it, dis, it has destroyed the world. It has put us all on edge. And we're always wondering when God's going to let the hammer down. I mean, we know it's got to be coming. Because people are not getting better, they're getting worse. And the worse they get, the more danger they put us all in. The worse we get, the more danger I put myself in, you put yourself in. And so there's always a price to pay for disobedience. There are consequences to sin. And so God, for example, in the Scriptures, He makes the simple statement, and sometimes it's in italics. He says... The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The soul that sinneth, I mean, he may be he may be making another point, but suddenly comes up in parentheses: the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And it just it's just a reminder to us of that. You go all the way back to the Garden of Eden with that thought, because God said, uh, "Here is." Some rules now, Adam, that I'm putting you and your wife under. And he said, the rule is this. Of every tree in the garden thou mayest freely eat. That sounds mighty generous, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like a giving God, a generous God. All of these fruit trees, you can eat of every single one of them, but one. There's one you can't eat of. And a lot of people looks at that. God says you can eat of all these trees, but you can't eat of this one tree. And they look at that and say, why not? It puffs them up as if God's doing them dirty. But look at the generosity of God. Just one, just one. And of course, God is going to use that tree to prove them, to test them. They were created in innocence, but now they've got to pass the test. And this test comes upon mankind. And I'm humanly thinking here. I could be way off base. But I would say the test comes upon mankind because in the celestial realm, they were put somewhat to the test as well and fail. Lucifer and a third of the angelic host. And now man is going to be put to the test using this tree. And so he said, In the day ye eat thereof, ye shall surely die. So to start with, God gives man uh, restrictions. He said, Live under this, do what I tell you to do, and you'll be all right.
As long as I did what my mom and my dad told me to do, I was, I was doing okay concerning these particular rules that he, he put under there. Be home at nine o'clock, he'd tell us. And he'd say, after you get, after you get done with that, come straight home, he, they would tell us. And if I didn't do what dad told me, all my mother had to do was say to me, when your daddy get home, I'm going to tell him what you've done. And that automatically put me in a, in a spirit of fear and trembling because I knew what was coming. And so Mama never whipped us, but I wish at times that she had. I would have figured maybe it wouldn't have been. She was always kind of weak, you know, and thin. And I'd, But my dad, boy, I tell you, when he drew the belt, he'd reach all the way back into Heard County and come around and tear me up. And... Uh, he knew how to apply the punishment. Well, God wants His people safe and He wants His people distinct. He wants us to be like Him. And so He has given these rules and these regulations to the uh, ancient Hebrew people. And these first 17 verses of chapter 20, it's been my... Uh, desire and I, my effort to try to get us to understand that these commandments that He gave here are not to be trashed in our day. We are under grace, but we've got to understand that the Ten Commandments are the moral laws of God and those commandments are not the enemies of grace because grace comes across the same way. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, he says, The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's in New Testament times. And that's part of the scriptures that was given to pastoral ministry in Titus. And so the preachers ought to preach that to the churches, and the churches ought to live by that. We don't live by that to keep ourselves saved. We live by that because we are saved, and God wants His people to be distinct, to be a holy people, and to be the people of God and to show this world again what a Christian looks like. Now, if that sounds like we're on a merry-go-round and we keep hitting the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, that is exactly right. It's done on purpose. It's not because I have dementia, even though I do. But it's because this is what God wants me to keep nailing until we get it nailed down. I... And, and one reason, again, because I do it, because so many are saying, don't put the Ten Commandments on the church wall. And don't hang the Ten Commandments in the courthouse. Because we're not no longer under that law. Jesus came and fulfilled that law. He did. He came and He kept that law perfectly. That's how He fulfilled it. He did everything that 
God required. That's something we have not done. That's something the ancient Hebrew people did not do. That's something Adam himself did not do. All of mankind in every generation all the way around the world has violated God's will and God's law. And so Jesus came to represent us as the perfect man so that he would keep that law. He would do for us what we did not and could not do for ourselves. He did it for us. And now his righteousness, his perfection has been charged to us who are God's people, and our sins, our breaking and violating God's laws and God's rules and regulations for us has been imputed to Him. He paid the sin debt, and with His stripes we are healed. And so, now that I'm saved, God wants me to continue to live under His law. That's His will for me, under His rules for me. That's what He wants. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be like me, like Father, like Son. That's what I want for my family, says the Holy God. And so all of us are to press forward. Let me tell you something, in case you don't know it. If you don't know it, you had not been around very long. I am tempted, and you are tempted, or at least I have been tempted on either, every one of those sins there. Or every one of those commandments God said, don't do, I've, I've broken them all. I've broken them all. Right on back to having no God before me, no other God before me, I've had that too. And I have, and it, for myself it has been mostly something of materialism, of the things of the world. And I find myself holding too tight to that. Holding too tight to it. Sometimes I think people hold so tight to their money that the president on the bill is the one that don't choke him to death. You hear him coughing because we got such a hold on it. We don't want to turn it loose. By the way, we don't want to turn it loose for these spiritual investments as well. And that's sad. And the gospel is hindered from going as it should be going. The church of the living God ought to be gung-ho for such as this. But we hold back because we've got other plans for this, that, and the other. But every commandment we have broken, I'm grateful we have a substitute who did not break them and that we can have imputed righteousness to us, charged our accounts, and when God the Father looks upon us, he, he sees the Lord Jesus Christ and He says to us, you can come into my presence and uh, we can go there where we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. So all these things, this is what this chapter is about. And he continues by showing us the response that the Hebrew people had toward what was taking place with that mountain, the presence of God on Mount Sinai, and how that His presence just engulfed that whole mountain, smoking and lightning flashing and thunder rolling. 
And it put fear in the hearts of those people. It would have caused you and I to tremble as well. And uh, because they, they understood the transcendence of God. God, it was like Solomon who built the house of the Lord. And he said, he, he's called upon to build the house of the Lord in, in the Old Testament. And he says, how can I build a house that cannot contain God? He said, heaven and earth cannot contain God. And so he was thinking on a smaller mind about God than he should have been thinking, but he understood that at least this much that God is above and beyond. And we need to remember this is called the transcendence of God. That God created all things, but He's bigger than all things. God Himself is the author of this book, but He's bigger than this book. This book tells us what God wants us to know about Him, but it don't tell us everything. No, sir. In ages to come, Ephesians 2 tells us that God is going to continue to reveal to us the riches of His grace and His kindness to us throughout eternity is going to be a learning experience for all of us. Because God is much bigger than people understand Him to be. The concept that this world has of God is like, like a tiny pea in a world plowed up with, with the pea plants. And it's like the, the thought they have of God is like one tiny pea or pebble. And it's nothing compared to His transcendence. He transcends all of His creation. He's much bigger than all of His creation. Goes beyond His universe. This is our God. And so, He wants us to learn Him. And we, of course, it's our duty to learn Him as believers. If He is saying to me, I want you to be this way, I need to dig into that and find out what that way is all about. And learn that. And, and try to fit the bill. Try to be what He's calling on me to be. He's the great potter. And as the potter, he has designed all along my journey certain places where I'm going to be feel myself being pressed because he is molding me. He's going to bring me to his image and there are certain things that I've got to experience that may be very painful and difficult, but this will aid in bringing me more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. More and more to the, being an imitator of God, a follower of God as dear children. That's the way the Apostle Paul put it. We're dear children. And so, he uses these things. Well, the children of Israel, look at it right here in verse 18, chapter 20. And I was going to separate verses 18 to 21 and then end with 22 to 26, but I'm going to put it all together and try to kind of rush through it. Verse 18, And all the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet, just a continual blast of trumpet, and the mountain smoking 
And when the people saw it, they removed and stood afar off. And no, it was not a volcano. It was the presence of God. I, I, as far as I know, Mount Sinai has never spit any lava. But it was the presence of God causing every bit of this. And they knew that. And he goes on to say, and when the people saw it, verse 18, they removed... Nuah is the Hebrew word, and it means here to tremble. They trembled and stood afar off. They stood back as God told them to do. Don't touch the mountain, he said. You are beast. They who touch it dies. Verse 19, they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. We need a mediator. We still need a mediator. Moses was a saved, or the, many of those, Aaron and others, were saved people. But they needed a mediator. They didn't want God to talk to them. They were afraid it would kill them. For God to just speak. God tells Moses, what is it, 34, Exodus 34 maybe. He says, I can't show you my face. Moses wanted to see God's face. He wanted to see God's glory. God said, I can't show you my face. You couldn't take it. You would die. When Moses came down off of Mount Sinai, he's been in the presence of God, and now there's a glow about him. He has to come down, and the people see that, and it puts fear in them. They can't handle that, the glory of God. And so they had him to cover his face with a veil until that glow would leave. And every time he would go back, he would come back with the glow upon him. And so these people, they stand back. They are afraid. Verse 20, And Moses said unto the people, and this is, watch the statement, Fear not. Fear not. For God has come to prove you, to test you, and that his Fear may be before your faces that ye sin not. It's strange. He says, fear not. And then he says, you need to fear. But I showed you last week two different kinds of fear. When you and I think of the judgment, when I think of, I'm not going to appear at the great white throne judgment, but I am going to appear at the judgment seat of Christ. And my works are going to be tried in the fire, whether they be good or evil. Whether they be for the glory of God or for the glory of myself. I, my works will be tried. And I'm here to tell you, I am not looking forward to that. I'm not looking forward to that. I'll be so glad when we get past that. I don't know a lot of times if my works were good or if they were bad. If my preaching was good or if it's going to be considered bad. Or if my praying is good or it's going to be considered bad. It has to do with how much of my flesh is mingled in with that. And how much of wrong desire is mingled into that. Or untruth is mingled into that. We don't fully know ourselves. That's why we must constantly be taking inventory of self and find out where we really are with God. And that's one reason I appreciate Brother Edwards' book, 
religious affection so very much because it has told on me. It has called my attention to things about me that I did not know. But it has also given me wonderful peace, praise the Lord, that has stirred me and caused me to want to press forward. It's encouraged me. And I'm glad that's what truth does. It tells it tells on us. It tells what is right and what is wrong about us. And it tells us about ourselves in light of the presence of God. Because when God moves into our presence, all the truth comes out. His light exposes our darkness. Let's read on. Verse 21, the people stood afar off and Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said unto Moses, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, make an altar, build an altar, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, thy peace offerings, thy sheep and thine oxen, in all places where I record my name, such as he will later in Jerusalem. I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, Thou shalt not build it of hewn or cut stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, your chisel, your hammer, and start cutting, thou hast polluted it. Now, one thing that I see in this, if I can make an application here, I see that God does not want man to put his hands too deeply into this matter of worship, worshiping God. Don't change anything that I give to you, says the Lord. You take the stones as they are, because as they are is how I have made them. You take them as they are, and you pile them together, you fit them together as the altar, and you do your sacrificing on the altar. Don't cut anything. You see, that's the problem that we're having today. We've got men today who is fooling with stuff that God don't want us fooling with. He, 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 don't, he don't want some man-made part of worship put in it. He don't want some man-made part of the altar, using the altars in the wrong way because it's been designed by men for certain things. He don't want men to put his hands in anything that God himself has designed. Man don't need to make God's design better. It's good enough. It's perfect. We need to approach God the way he has designed in the Holy Scriptures. I could preach for two hours on that, but I'm not because there's a point I'm trying to make with all this. You might hear something on that a little bit later. Let me move on and get this last verse, verse 26. 
Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. God is always a God of modesty. He is always a God who cares about the way we dress. And He don't want us showing a whole lot of skin in public. One reason is because there are a bunch of maniacs out there that's looking for that kind of something to stare at and to look at and to lust after. And I, and I really believe that, that we all had better listen carefully to Jesus' message on, uh, on the mountain when he was preaching Sermon on the Mount. And he said, If any man looketh after a woman to lust after her, he hath committed adultery, W-I-T-H, with her in his heart. And so I would ask the ladies, please, don't be a trap in the hand of Satan and this world to cause someone else to lust after you. Because that individual is committing adultery with you when he's doing that. Now, I understand you can be fully clothed. You can, you can have a dress to your ankles and you, you can be fully clothed and not show anything that would tempt or try. And some, there are men who, who just have nothing but that on the brain. And they're going to lust anyway. We understand that. But you're not trying to help them. You understand? Very important that we bring up things like this. Because one day, all of us are going to stand before God and give account to God. And we're dealing here in some very sensitive areas, I know. And I hope each one of you will take it with the same spirit that I try to give it to you in. And it's because I care about you, I love you, and I want to try to help you. It's very important that we be Christian ladies and Christian gentlemen and because, well, here, here are the priests. He said, you, you make steps and you go up those steps to offer the sacrifices and you have your priestly robe on, open at the bottom, and you go up and that means the people down here can see that way. Now, he's also going to have them to wear what is called, to wear beneath the robe, what is called breeches. That's what is called breeches in the Scriptures. As, as those Levites and those priests go up those steps to offer the offerings. And other kinds of undergarments that will keep them clothed and covered. But until he gives that, I suppose, they've got to understand that you got to be careful about going upstairs. You see, all, that don't matter. Listen, God is concerned about modesty. Our modesty. We are God's people, and so that's how we are to dress. That's how we are to talk. That's the way we are to live. That's the kind of character He wants us to have. Because we are His people. And He said, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And He said, 
I have not called you to uncleanness, but to holiness. And so, I'm just preaching what the Bible teaches. And he tells the women in 1 Timothy 2 that they are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. That's the word that he uses. Modest apparel. All right. All of this tells us what God expects of His people. Of the ancient people and of the people today. I don't have a robe, but up here to get to my pulpit, I do have steps. And I think I'm dressed appropriately for that. But if I did have a robe on, if it didn't go all the way down to my feet, I would have to have something else. And because that's absolutely necessary, this is what God requires. And I would be happy to do that. And I want my wife to do that. I want her to be that way. I would love for my daughters to be that way, but that's not the case. And I would love for my sons to be that way as well. A man is to dress right. A woman is to dress right. We are all to dress right. And I'm moving more into this than I intended. But it's something that needs to be said, and I don't think can be said too much. But this is the nature of God coming across to us. This is God telling us something of Himself. He's telling us by the commandments something of Himself. The kind of God that He is. When my dad and mother made rules for me, they were telling me something of their self. The rules they made for my brother, my sister, and myself may have been something that their parents made for them. And then they made that for us. My dad warned me. And my brother Ernest, he warned both of us. This was back yonder when uh, the Beatles came along and the long hair came on the scene on, on us boys. My daddy, <laughs> he said, boys, if y'all ever come in here with that long hair, I'm going to take two rocks and I'm going to scrape it off your head like that. My dad talked rough. <laughs> He had rough on me and me and my brother. But you know, we took him at his word. And I never did have long hair. I waited till he went home to be with the Lord to grow a beard. I was, you know. Because <laughs> he has some feelings about that too. So, what are we talking about? We're talking about the holiness of God. And I tried to cover that the best I can. I want to move for just a moment. In, in the closing of, of the message, and give me just a, a little while to do it. I want to say something in particular about the goodness of God. The goodness of God, because we see that in these truths. We see that. We see that God is being good. He was being good to Adam and Eve when He restricted them. He was being good to the ancient Hebrew people when He restricted them. He's being good to us when He restricts us. When He says, you go this far and don't go any further. You do this and don't do that. I mean, when God restricts us, He's, being, he's not being mean. He's not being abusive. He's not a child abuser. He's being good. And we need to look at what He is calling upon us to be and to do 
as we are trying to understand the goodness of God. God wants what is best for us. Have you ever seen a child, a toddler, and 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 when that baby gets to running around over at y'all's house, y'all let me know. I want to come watch it. I want to watch her. I love. I I remember years ago. I saw a toddler, a child outside with dad, and the child was trying to catch its shadow. It was running all over the place. Every time it would turn, its shadow would move, and that child was trying to catch its shadow, and it was so comical. And I enjoyed watching that. It's amazing how God can take little babies and just tickle you to death. Laughter does good like a medicine. And God, there's nothing wrong with laughing at the right things, the things that God provides. And so I saw that child running around or trying to catch its shadow. And it got so frustrated. He, that little guy got so frustrated, he couldn't understand why he couldn't catch that shadow. But there's no way he could catch it. Every time he moved, the shadow moved. The harder he run, the faster the shadow outrun him. He couldn't do anything. That's the way it is with all of us concerning shadows. Those are things that come across to us as if they are tangible. But they are not really tangible, though you can see them. They're not something you can take hold of. God is not that way. God is not that way. Let me read a scripture to you. I could quote it, but I want to read it. I want to make certain I get it exactly right. This comes from James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift, we're talking about the goodness of God now, all right? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness or variation or shadow of turning. Now let's think about that for just a moment. He is telling us, one thing he's teaching us here is the immutability of God. That is, God does not change. God does not change. There is no shadow of turning in God. He never changes. This suggests not only that God himself is immaterial, and that God is spirit, but there is also no shadow side to God. God is very open. I don't mean that He don't have secrets. He does have secrets. Divine secrets that He keeps among the Godhead. He don't tell us everything. But there is no shadow side to God. We talk about the behind God's back in all this. But really, God don't have a back. I mean, that's called anthropomorphic language. That is, God bringing words down on our level where we can better understand them. So God likened Himself as if He had a human body. But He didn't. Jesus said, God is spirit. That's a disembodied being. 
He is spirit. And we ought to worship Him in our spirit and in truth. This makes the connection. Our body puts us in contact with others, with men. Our soul puts us in contact with ourself. And our spirit puts us in contact with God. And in God there is no shadow, no shadow side to God. Shadow suggests darkness. And in spiritual terms, darkness suggests evil. And since there is no evil in God, there is no hint of darkness in God. He is the Father of lights. Let me read a few scriptures to you and see if we can tie some of this together. Listen to the Bible. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5 and 6 says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. No. God is light. That speaks of the holiness of God, the perfection of God. And He has nothing hid. He don't have to hide anything from us. Jesus told those religious leaders of Israel, He said, My life has been an open book before you. And I want to know which one of you can convince me that I've sinned. Tell me, where have I done it? You've been watching me. You've been listening to me speak. I've said much before you. You heard any cussing come out of my mouth? Any lies coming out of my mouth that you can prove to be a lie? No, you can't. Because there has been nothing but truth. And so there's no darkness with God. No, sir. Problem is with men. And if you and I walk in darkness, see if God is light and He is present with us and He is in us, then we're not to have a shadow side either. Our life should be an open book. That now, I, I know I, I'm like you. I've got my hidden sides too. We all do. Because none of us are perfect. And the reason I got my side, my part of mine hid is because I'm so ashamed. It makes me ashamed. And I'm repenting. I know I, I've repented and I'll continue to repent and get right with God with these areas and get this dark spot out of my life. They talk about dark spots on the sun. Well, I want to get those dark spots off of me because I am today to reflect the light of the Lord Jesus Christ to this world. And it's important that I tell the truth because if I don't tell the truth, if I keep telling the lie, keep telling the lie, every time you tell a lie, you got to tell another one to back it up or to cover it up. And so this is the reason God has put us behind the fences. He has restricted us 
because we still have the sin nature. But we are not to be controlled by it. We are to control it by the power of the Holy Ghost. You say, Brother Tommy, that's a tall order, a lot taller than any of us. You're right. But it's something God tells us to do. Just like He said in Luke, He says to lost people, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. And once you're in, you are to strive on that narrow road. Put forth every effort. This is what God wants us to do. But we're always dependent upon God, even in that initial entering in of that straight gate. It's done by God Himself. But we are accountable to God. And God calls on us. He don't want us to have a shadow side either. He wants us to live a life that we wouldn't have to be afraid of other people knowing about. There are things, for example, that I keep hid that I did when I was a lost man. When I was a lost boy. I don't even like to think about them. And there are times that they have come to my mind and just tormented the daylights out of me. Because maybe I'd go past a place where I did this particular thing and I'm reminded of it. See, I grew up in this county, in this area, and so I did my sinfulness in this area as well. And there are places that reminds me of that. And I, I can't look on them lightheartedly. When James adds that there is no shadow of turning with God, it is not enough to understand this merely in terms of God's unchanging or immutable being. This reference is also to God's character. Not only is God altogether good, He is consistently good. God doesn't know how to be anything but good. That's His character. That's who He is. He just being who He is. God has nothing to be ashamed of. We've got a world today trying to shame God. Where was God when the catastrophe took place? When the Titanic sunk? When the planes flew into the big towers there in New York and into the Pentagon, D.C.? Where was God when there, when my child got run over, when, when my mama died, when this happened and that happened. Where was God? He was where He's always been. And He's not trying to hide from us. He's not trying to pull an atom on us. Who when He heard the voice of God, He had every reason to run and hide. He had every reason to be afraid. But God don't have to run and hide. He's done nothing wrong. The reason we have all these catastrophes and everything that's taking place that is painful in life is not, God is not to blame. We used to sing the song years ago, sin is to blame for all troubles. Sin is to blame for all pain, all heartache, all tears. It's not because of God. It's because of sin. And guess 
who commits the sins. I told somebody recently who was complaining against God, I said, the reason you're having the problems you're having is because you don't make the right choices. By your own nature, you make the wrong choices and you create all the hell you think you're in. You create it for yourself. It's not God's fault. God is good. Every good gift, every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights, in whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is good. Listen to me. So closely linked is goodness to God that even pagan philosophers such as Plato equated ultimate goodness, he called it the highest goodness, to God Himself. There's the highest goodness. As a matter of fact, when we look at God, we see the source of all goodness. He's the source of all goodness. The good things that you and I do, and I'm not trying to be critical or ugly, but I'm trying to tell you the honest truth. Our own righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. No matter how good we are, no matter how much we give, no matter how, how whatever about us that we, that looks to us as favorable to us, God sees all the lint and the dirt and the filthy particles and all that is mixed in there with it. Because we are not perfect, we do not pray perfectly, we do not preach perfectly, we do not witness perfectly, and then there are all those things that look real ugly to us that we're guilty of. You put all that together, you see how polluted that you really are. And that's why we must always be prayerful. Pray without ceasing confessing our faults and failures and sins and repenting of them. And see, the vast majority of the religious world don't want to hear preaching like that because they choose to think favorable of themselves, to have a high opinion of themselves. And that's the reason we get so mad at other people because they say bad things about us. But really, it may have been Spurgeon who said this, really as bad as they can speak of us is not as bad as we really are. I'm even, I'm even worse than you might consider me to be in and of myself. There's potential here to get in the worst kinds of sins. There's potential here for me to do the unspeakable. I don't trust myself. I have to keep my own nose to the grindstone. I have to pray. I have to get in that Bible. I have to try to fill my mind with spiritual things. 
that are godly. All this is necessary. God can't be anything but good. In Luke 18, Jesus said to that rich young ruler, the rich young ruler come to him, said, Good master, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, first of all, had to get him straight. He had doctrine that he did not, that conflicted with the way he thought. He called Jesus good. He didn't believe Jesus to be the Son of God. He knew He was a teacher. He knew He had been saying some things that stirred some people up, some to hostility and others to want to do right and seek the Lord and such. But He said He didn't, he didn't believe Jesus to be who Jesus claimed to be. He said, why did, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No, none is good but one. And that's God. Now that one, first of all, leaves all the rest of us out. We're not good. Jesus said there's only one who is good. And so, you see, when the Godhead speaks of goodness, they speak of goodness in perfection. Perfection. Absolute goodness. And that cannot do wrong or bad or violate their own nature. They are good because their nature is to be good. God judging sinners, putting them in hell. That, that has been called by many God's strange works. As if He is really contrary to that and He don't really want to do it. And when He speaks of us, He even speaks in those terms. God is not willing to do that. But He does it. But the only reason He speaks to us in those terms is so we can get it. It's not something that God enjoys doing. Goodness and enjoyment may not necessarily fit together at all times. Because there are times I'm enjoying something. Especially the Word of God. In prayer. Sometimes I enjoy preaching and teaching. And I know that there's all kind of failures with me. And so I'm not good as God is good. And you're not good as God is good. What are you saying, Brother Tom? I'm just telling you there's something here we got to work on. Constantly work on ourselves. I'm going to quit in just a minute. Bear with me, please. God's goodness refers both to His character and His behavior. He does what He does because He is who He is. His actions proceed from and flow out of His being, His character. He acts according to what He is. Just as a corrupt tree cannot bear incorrupt fruit, neither can an incorrupt God produce corrupt fruit. The law of God reflects God's goodness. The law of God reflects God's goodness. God is said to be good not because He obeys some cosmic law outside of Himself that judges Him, or because God so defines goodness that He can take 
He can act in a lawless manner and by the sheer power of his authority declare his actions good. God can't do wrong and declare that good because God can't do wrong because it's not his nature to do wrong. It is his nature to do right. And so God does not manipulate man by saying, it's all right for me to do this and for me to do that and me to do the other, even though I tell you not to do it. Because God, God's laws are proceeding from His character. It's coming from inside Him. This is the way He is. It's the way He thinks. Now, it is true that God says to us, Thou shalt not kill. And God kills people every day. But when God says to us, Thou shalt not kill, there are some, uh, uh, get what the word is, there are some, I'll put it to you this way, there are times when God allows us to kill. Stipulation. God puts some stipulation to that. There are times when God allows us to kill. Even another human being. The scriptures are very crystal clear on this. That there are times, there are certain cri- sins and crimes that deserve a capital punishment. And we will look at it this evening, Lord willing. The punishment must fit the crime. That's what God teaches in His Word. The punishment must fit the crime. An individual, don't get out here and commit a felony. And then the law is supposed to just slap them on the hand like a child with his hand in the cookie jar. No. Misdemeanors are one thing, but felony is another. And God calls on punishment for both, but the punishment of a misdemeanor is lighter than the punishment of a felony. And God says to man, if a man sheds blood, that is, if he murders, then by man shall his blood be shed. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it was in Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew days. That's the way it's supposed to be in these church days. God hadn't changed that. It means for it to be that way. And I know people say we don't... I wouldn't... I have learned of people who've committed crimes that are unthinkable. It's it's makes goosebumps jump up on my body to think about what they did. And I said out loud to somebody else, I wouldn't mind pulling the bar down and lighting up the electric chair and frying that person. I've said those things. But the truth of the matter is, I wouldn't want that job. I don't want that job. And I don't think anybody ought to want it. There are times, let's be honest now, these these are practical truths we need to lay hold of. Listen to me. Maybe you wouldn't kill a person, but you might enjoy reading the obituary column sometimes. Because you know that individual and you know what kind of person they've been. We need to be very cautious about things like this. We're talking about 
what true goodness is. God will do whatever He has to do, but He cannot ungod Himself. He cannot change His character. He changed His outward expression of God when He made a body for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when Jesus took that body and He was upon this earth in that body, He was still who He was in His nature. He was still good, holy, perfect. And that's why theologians call Him the God-man. The God-man. His God nature and His man nature were separate. He had a human nature, but He also had a divine nature. And He knew how to keep them separate. And He acted out both natures. But He's the perfect man. And being the perfect man, He kept the whole law of God. This is our God. This is His goodness. The law of God reflects His goodness. God is said to be good not because He obeys something outside Himself. God's law is in Himself. It's in His nature. It's not a law that's been posted. And He don't do it because it's been posted. It's been documented. It's in the books. That's not why He does it. He does it because that's who He is. He said, that's what I want you to be. I want you to strive to be that. You can't do it on your own. I'll help you. But as I see you striving, as I see you really pressing forward because you want what I want for you, I will help you with it. I will finally perfect you, God says to us. When I bring you into my presence, and when I bring you into the presence of the Holy God, He said, you will be glorified and you will be like me. And we're going to think just like He thinks. We're going to do that then. What about now? Well, He said in Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. And so we're to put forth effort now. I believe church members who brag about when I get to heaven I'll be holy. And they're not interested in holiness now. I'm afraid they may be lost church members. Because holiness now is our business. That's what God wants of us. And that's what you and I are to be for the glory of God. I know at some point I'm going to have to stop here in going into chapter 21. And I may do that tonight. But... Do you all understand why I have been pressing this over the past few weeks? What I I want us to see and understand, it's important not for you to learn what pastor wants of you, but what God wants of you. I'm just an under-shepherd, and He wants the same thing of me, and I'm having the same struggles with it that you're having. But I'm telling you, regardless of what it is, causes me to appear to be before you and you to appear to be before me. These are truths and facts that we must face so that we can be Christian. That's our aim. That's our goal. Forgetting the things that are behind and reaching forth.
This is what we want to be and this is what we want to do as God's people. Brother Ronnie, pray for us, brother.